The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest, a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you doing? Just the same. Eve of Thanksgiving. That's right. That's right. Great to be here, Father. <coughs> thankful for the program. Thankful for you. Thanks well, for that's me. mutual. Thanks very yes. much. And, yes. Uh, of course, uh, we always ask for prayers for some dear souls who are in need of them, and too many to name all. We have Immaculate Heart of Mary prayer list, though, which includes thousands of names of people who ask for prayers. So uh, we ask all of our viewers to uh, daily pray for those, pray for those who are on the list. Some of them, no doubt, more than a few of them are on the list themselves asking for prayers. So I do remember them also at the altar. Ask God to have mercy on them. Uh, and uh, tonight I'd ask for, in particular for prayers for Joe and, uh, and also a, a little, little boy named Blaze who uh, certainly needs our prayers. Uh, but there are so many others too. So please just, in your charity, please pray for them. God will bless them and bless you too for, for praying for them. Yep, absolutely. Okay. Uh, well, Father, in our uh, last program, we um, in mentioning the elections, the midterm elections, um, the state of our country, um, we spent some time uh, talking about the kingship of Christ, this idea of, of Christ's kingship. And uh, there was some interest in, in that program. We received some very positive feedback from that. Um, some of our viewers, though, were, were wondering, Father, if you could expound on that a bit more, um, explain exactly what you mean by the, by the kingship of Christ. Um, you mentioned the of Accelerages Association, uh, the men here, some of the men here at Immaculate Conception Church, um, other parishes ac across the country too, who are attempting to uh, to, to work out a, a constitution um, for a group, uh, Catholic Men for Christ the King, um, trying to work on this idea of establishing the king, the Christ kingship, the kingship of Christ. Um, but but Father, what um, what exactly do you do you mean by this? Is this the kingship of Christ? Can is this something that can be accomplished within the framework of our current society? Are you advocating for some kind of new alternate society? Um, what exactly do you, do you mean? Can you expound on this a bit more? Well, Tom, that's a very good question, because when you talk about the kingship of Christ, uh, Catholics will nod their heads and say, well, yes, that's a great idea, but that's all it is. It's a great idea, but in fact, uh, you know, it, it's something unattainable, yeah. Um, who was it who said that uh, trouble with Christianity is not that it was tried and failed, but that it was never, yeah, it was never tried, right? Um, uh, there are those who are arguing that, that the kingship of Christ and the actual rights of our Lord to govern human society, all human society here on earth, is uh, simply an idea and an ideal, but um, it can never really touch the ground because... Uh, we're living in a veil of tears, and uh, uh, after all, I mean, you know, this is a sinful world, right? And so um, we see, you know, people say, well, Christ came and he 
Um, stood before Pilate, and he acknowledged to Pilate that he is a king, but he said that his kingdom is not of this world, and uh, said that his kingdom was a kingdom of truth, meaning a kingdom of faith that our Lord brought to us. And then our Lord was crucified, died, buried, rose and ascended, and that any hope of a kingdom of God on earth would have ascended with him, some say. Uh, we know that he established his kingdom and it continues in his church even uh, till this very day and will uh, perdure until the very end of the world. We know that. Although, as our Lord said, the church would undergo a great apostasy. He foretold that through the words of St. Paul in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And our Lord himself asked the question rhetorically, do you think when the Son of Man returns to earth to judge, he will find faith on earth? The rhetorical question begged the rhetorical answer, well, no, or not much. In fact, we have the idea that the, the faith will, approach the practice of faith will, in a sense, be underground again. Our Lord returns to earth, uh, in a sense, very much as it was when he left earth at the, his ascension. But our Lord continues with us in the Blessed Sacrament, and our Lord says that where the body is, referring to his own body, the body of Christ, there will the eagles be gathered together. We read that in uh, St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. Uh, just of these Sundays here, just this past Sunday, actually, uh, the last Sunday after Pentecost. Now, the reason I mention all this is because uh, in, in saying that the idea of the kingship of Christ over mankind, the rightful authority of Christ to govern mankind, is a nice idea, but it has no practical consequences, uh, we'd have to say that they are absolutely wrong. And this is part of the problem uh, we faced uh, all along and why we're in the situation we're in today, uh, socially, not only in this country, but throughout the world, is because uh, Catholics have not been willing to shoulder the responsibilities, shoulder the cross, and march forward bearing that cross to you know, establish the kingship of Christ here on earth over all mankind. Um, it's a matter of conversion, uh, starting with the conversion of ourselves to really believe in the kingship of Christ and live that, um, that service to Christ, but then to profess the truth, the truth to everyone and to let them know that there can be no well-governed human society on earth um, which rejects, rejects the kingship of Christ. It's an absolute sine qua non of any good governance here on earth that um, a society itself and those who chosen to govern that society recognize the kingship of Christ. Otherwise, you will always have the chaos and the corruption that we're witnessing right now. Uh, it is a re direct result of the rejection of the kingship of our Lord. Mm -hmm. comes down to that. So, um, you mentioned the Vexillary Association. Men, uh, some Catholic men for Christ the King, we call them. They belong to the Vexillary Association, the battle, battle standards of the King. And uh, to indicate that it is a militant organization, right? part of the church militant, for the sake of uh, militating for that uh, doctrine of the kingship of Christ and to put it into practice, to realize it here. Has it ever been done? Yes, it has. There have been instances in the history of the church where there really were, honest to goodness, 
Christian, honestly Christian Catholic kingdoms, where the rulers and the populace were genuine Christians. Not only in theory, but in fact, they tried to uh, follow the moral law of Christ and acknowledge his sovereignty. Uh, the very first Catholic kingdom here on earth was the kingdom of Armenia. Uh, that was the first avowedly Christian society. That was very early days of the church, too. Um, <clears throat> but, I mean, you know, you, you had um, nominally Christian societies with most Catholic kings who were not really very Catholic or Christian in their behavior and their principles. But then, you, you know, you can look at the failures, but you have to look at the successes to realize this can be done. I mean, we have the example of uh, St. Louis, King of France, <clears throat> in the 1200s, at the time of St. Thomas Aquinas, who really was a Catholic monarch in the full sense of the word. And he, he governed in such a way that he was very protective of his people against the barons. The barons were very rapacious of the people. And uh, we, we, we actually have... Um, the, uh, you know, the stories of St. Louis actually enacting legislation and uh, intervening personally to, perfect the, to protect the people against the barons, enacting laws to protect the, the common people against the barons who would just uh, uh, take advantage of them uh, as, as their overlords. Uh, St. Louis really was the quintessential Catholic king. He was loved by the people. In fact, when he, when he became, when his father died, uh, when Louis VIII passed away, um, Louis IX was only 12 years old, his mother Blanche uh, was regent for him. When he was crowned uh, at the age of 13, and he was going to Paris uh, then to you know, take his residence, the barons that basically wanted to kill him. But the people... The people themselves actually crowded the streets and crowded the, uh, the highways uh, to protect him from the barons who were trying to get at him because they actually feared that he would curtail their power, which is exactly what he did. But the common people actually stood up for him there, um, which speaks well for his father, speaks well for his mother, the regent, <laughs> and speaks well for what they thought of Louis, Louis, Louis the, the Ninth, and he delivered for them. Um, so if one were to study uh, France under Louis IX, Louis IX, one would see how a Catholic king really conducts himself. And uh, he actually left a kind of testament uh, in a letter to his son Philip as to how a Catholic monarch should rule. But it was not just a disembodied statement uh, to his son, it was a letter to his son as his son, as a father to his son saying this is what he expects of him as, as, a, as a ruler now to rule over the people of France. It's a very edifying letter, a very pious letter of faith and hope and charity, actually. We'll probably do a program on that letter of Louis the, the, to his son Philip. Uh, you might say it was almost like a last will and testament of uh, his father's heart to his son Philip. One can see it, one can read through. Yeah. Um, his concern was uh, being faithful to God, being honorable, 
and uh, charitable to his people, protecting them from those who would rob them of their goods, and especially from those who would rob them of their faith. You can see he was concerned about those who would rob them of their faith. Blasphemers and, and so on, who would, who would destroy the faith by heresy. In any case, certainly worth reading. But then, you know, there are other instances too. Uh, um, you know, just the, the, the reductions of the, the Jesuits, the real Jesuits, before they were suppressed by the Freemasons. Uh, the reductions of Paraguay, and actually just a larger area of South America, southern Brazil and Uruguay and so on. And so it was very extensive. Um, you know, it is thought that there were as many as 100,000 Guarani uh, natives who were in these reductions. And uh, the way they were ruled by the Jesuit superiors was such that they were, they were achieving a great amount of autonomy from their European um, masters, you might say. This is why the Masons uh, decided to crush them, uh, because they were, they were actually working toward their independence, no longer as colonies. And it was the Jesuits, the real Jesuits at the time, who were guiding them. They became very powerful centers of culture, uh, including Guarani culture and uh, uh, talents that the Guaranis had cultivated naturally over the years uh, were put to use for the faith and for Christ. But uh, they were way ahead of their time in terms of uh, emancipation. Uh, they, they were not slaves there. When they had these, there were about 50, I think, 50 different uh, uh, centers of these reductions. And uh, they were not slave plantations. That's what the that's what the Masons wanted them to be. But uh, the Guarani um, had areas that were common property for the whole community. But every one of the Guarani householders had property of his own to cultivate. Each one had his own personal property. So it certainly was not socialism. It certainly was not communism. It was very Catholic, and there was a, definitely a belief in private property. But there was also a sense of taking care of the overall community as well. Uh, and no wonder these prospered, because they were very well governed, again, according to Catholic principles, uh, guided by uh, the Gospels, our Lord Jesus Christ as King. Um, and these are worth studying for the future, to know how do you actually constitute and rule, and what laws, and how are they enforced in a Catholic society. Uh, there, there are others too. I mean, the, the, um, the reductions were founded, I think, in 1609, and um, went into the, uh, basically, uh, let's see, went right through the 1700s until the uh, Jesuits were suppressed violently throughout the world. Uh, uh, by the pressure of the Freemasons, first against the kings of France, Spain, and Portugal, and then against the church itself. Uh, Clement XIII, who was a great hero of the papacy, would not succumb to the pressure. But Clement XIV, unfortunately, uh, was not the man that Clement XIII was. So Clement XIV, his successor, caved to the pressure of the Masons and suppressed the Jesuits. They remained suppressed for 40 years. So in all the missions where they were, including our own out in California, they were basically rounded up at Bayonet Point, loaded on ships, and, and just basically dumped 
into the ocean off the shores of Africa or wherever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a, a horrible thing, and that's how the, the reductions were reduced to slavery, because once again they found themselves under the thumb of the crown, and the crown itself of Spain, Portugal, and France was under the, under the thumb of the Freemasons. Their, their prime ministers were all Masons. So um, it's, a, it's an interesting history and certainly worth reading. As you know, the Jesuits were reconstituted about 40 years later, but they were never the same. Mm-hmm. So about your Ecuador under, um, Garcia Moreno. under Gabriel Garcia Moreno, another very interesting study. And it's interesting again to note how Gabriel Garcia Moreno, through faith and hope and charity, governed that nation. He, he governed the nation as a Catholic uh, president. You don't have to be a monarch. You don't have to be a Catholic monarch to govern a nation well, as a Catholic president who was duly elected by the people. Um, and he was uh, finishing his second term. He was elected for a third. He consecrated Ecuador to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And that was marked him for death. The Masons determined he had to die. And so he was uh, hacked to death with a machete and at the same time uh, shot. I mean, they weren't taking any chances that he was going to survive. Um, he was actually up for beatification until Vatican II. And at Vatican II, that all, you know, the idea of having a Catholic monarch, uh, or a Catholic president even, duly elected by the people, governing uh, his people in peace and prosperity, no, we couldn't have that anymore. You know, Vatican II shut down all such talk. Um, and so, um, but he was up for beatification. And uh, the, the account of uh, the warnings he received and his response to those warnings was very edifying. He was warned by a Jesuit priest friend, actually, that he was in great danger and he'd better take special cautions. And he said he'd already been to confession and he was ready and he was expecting. He was expecting that the enemies of the faith the enemies of the church, the enemies of Christ, would, would attack him. And he was in the hands of God, and he accepted that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think he actually did die a martyr, in fact. Um, because he knew the enemy. The enemy would not stop at anything. Sort of like in our own country, we see abortionists who will not stop at anything. Um, they will wade through the, the gallons and gallons of blood of babies in order to gain and hold political power. Um, that's where they look for their base, those who you know, accept their promises to guarantee them a right to abort their children. And, um, you know, Tom, I haven't given you much of a chance to speak. I don't know, maybe you have some questions on this point, but um, uh, there's a lot more to say about this question of establishing a Catholic society and the question of, is it a practical question or merely a hypothetical question about the kingship of Christ? Mm-hmm. But I should let you get a word in edgewise here. <laughs> well, Father, I, I'd just like to ask, I mean, it's great that you're, you're pointing out these, um, these real-life practical examples that we have and certainly be worth studying, but um, could, I, could I ask, Father, what... What? Um, where do these these real Catholic monarchs, presidents, where where do they get the principles from that guide the the um, the, the formation of other countries? That, that well, they get it from the church. They get it from their faith in Christ, 
And uh, ultimately, it is the church that Christ established, the traditional Catholic church, um, that upholds the kingship of Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, Luther actually deviated from that. He basically said that as a monarch or a, a prince, a prince has to act as a secular. He, can, he does not take his faith into consideration when he rules. Uh, that his faith is a matter of personal matter between him and God. But in terms of uh, exercising earthly power, he uh, basically has to, um, you know, n not concern, not be concerned with faith, matters of faith. Mm -hmm. um, and this is the, the death of the very idea of the kingship of Christ on earth, mm -hmm. you know, because the Catholic Church has taught us the opposite. Uh, in fact, there was a, a great martyr, uh, St. Thomas More, as you know, um, who died in the same century that Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Cathedral of Wittenberg, right? Thomas More was put to death uh, by Henry VIII. And um, there is actually a, a scene from the play by Robert Bolt, A Man for All Seasons. You know, the, the film is excellent, right? Nominated for seven Academy Awards, I think. And um, there's, a, there's a moment when uh, Woolsey, I think it was uh, Cardinal Woolsey, <laughs> asks if uh, Thomas More would rule the kingdom by, by prayer. Right? And... Uh, Thomas More indicated that yes, yes, he certainly would. And Wolsey said, well, I'd like to be there when you try. But also, Thomas More tells uh, Cardinal Wolsey, this is a, the churchman, the, basically, I think, the primate of the church in England at the time, right? Um, that when statesmen forsake their personal consciences, uh, for in order to pursue their public duty, they lead their nation on a short path to chaos. Some some say he said to hell, but certainly he said a short path to chaos. And this actually is a very brief but eloquent way of stating the church's faith that you know when you are in charge, when you have responsibility. Uh, your first responsibility is toward God, and you have to uphold that responsibility to God first. And when you're a statesman, and you're responsible for governing, um, especially, you have to be, hold yourself responsible to Almighty God. And when you say, well, I have a choice between my conscience and public expediency, uh, if I choose what is public expediency, then, as St. Thomas More says, you lead your nation on a short path to chaos. What we have now. And uh, we've seen examples of that over and over again. So, uh, no, the service to God and Christ the King must come first. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, we, we find practical examples of that all around us. Look at a Ted Kennedy. He says, personally, I'm against abortion, but... You know, in, in publicly, I have to uphold the right to choose. Well, is that not an exact 
case of what Thomas More uh, says here? Is that not why we're in the condition we are now? Because the so-called Catholic, so-called statesmen, they're politicians, all they are, um, have done exactly that. <clears throat> if they had any conscience to forsake in the first place, that is. Uh, and that's a good question, you know, whether they forsook any conscience, forsake the conscience or not in the first place. <clears throat> but they, at least they professed to be Catholics. The idea, well, privately, you know, personally, I'm, I'm pro-life, but <clears throat> publicly I, I have to be pro-choice, which means basically you have to acknowledge everybody's right to abort their children mm. as a matter of public policy. Mm. Well, well, Father, let's um, just hypothetically, let's say by the grace of God, the next presidential election here in the United States, we have some uh, great, solid, traditional Catholic man who is elected to the presidency here in the United States of America. You say he, he should look to the to the traditional Catholic Church to get the principles um, where, where uh, he would he would govern the nation. But um, what can you give any concrete examples? What exactly? I mean, the Church kind of nebulous. What exactly can you narrow it down at all? Should should he be should he be looking at? Should he be reading papal encyclicals? Um, is there any specific doctrine on, on this? Well, the trouble is, you know, we have these Catholic, uh, these Novus Ordo Catholic uh, politicians who are looking to the Novus Ordo bishops for guidance. Mm -hmm. Novus Ordo bishops are basically, again, very compromised in everything, to say the least. Uh, they themselves are often just politicians, often of the basest sort, too. Uh, I think they would certainly, I mean, it's a terrible thing to say, I suppose, but I mean, many of them, I think, give the impression that they would be gladly, uh, gladly make the deal of taking the 30 pieces of silver to betray our Lord. I think this is what we're witnessing right now. It goes all the way up to the Vatican. The man who appoints them. I mean, uh, Tom, I mean, it is no exaggeration to say that the entire world has been betrayed into the hands of the uh, LGBTQIA. It, it's, the entire world has become perverted and has been actually surrendered into the, into the power of, the, of, of perversion. When Our Lady told uh, little Jacinta, uh, when she was in the hospital in Lisbon, back in 1918, 19, um, that um, the world was worse then than it was in the time of the flood, worse than it was in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, the world then, imagine what the world now, how that would compare. And the judgment of God that came down on. No wonder Our Lady said she was holding back the arm of our Lord raised to strike injustice. And it was very hard, even for Our Lady to hold that back. She was asking our help in coming to her aid by consecrating ourselves to her Immaculate Heart and stop sinning, make reparation to our Lord and to God for the sins of mankind and pray, notably the Rosary, which is simply praying the life of Christ and Our Lady together, uh, life of Our Lady with our Lord. That's what the rosary is, is praying the gospel, essentially. So, um, you know, a simple request, but really powerful Re requests um, that really have not been adequately answered, I'm afraid. That's where you and I come in now, and the rest of us. Hopefully our viewers come in right now. But... Um, you know, we had a Catholic president, didn't we? John F. Kennedy. Um, you know, I, I mean, there are all kinds of stories out of the Kennedy White House, which are not very edifying. But we knew what to expect when, well, he was still a candidate. 
he was asked, well, would he let his allegiance to uh, the Catholic Church, to Rome, to the Vatican, interfere with his government? He said that it would not. He said that his belief as a Catholic would not influence his decisions as the President of the United States of America. <clears throat> now, I'm sure there are many Kennedy fans out there and supporters, but I'm sorry. Um, it seems to me that if a man gets up and is running for president and tells you, I promise you that if I'm elected, I will not follow my conscience, <clears throat> that you should immediately cross that name right off the list and say, well, if I can't, if I'm going to elect you, you want me to elect you, and you're already guaranteeing to me that you're not going to promise, follow your conscience, and that's supposed to be an enticement to me to vote for you? Uh, that's, that's wrong. That's just wrong. Um, so any, anyone who would run for public office who would guarantee people say, okay, publicly, you know, I'll, I'll go along with your abortion thing. Privately, I'm against it, Mike and conscience, but publicly, I'll go along with it. I should immediately just forget that person entirely. Just say you're not even on the radar as far as electing anyone. And one might say, well, gee, if I don't say that, I won't get elected. And I say, well, fine, you don't get elected then. But if you do run and you stand on the basis of what you know is right and wrong, your faith, your hope, your love for our Lord and his kingship, you have the microphone, say it. Say it out loud. Tell everyone. Okay, maybe you're not elected, but maybe you should take that microphone with the intention of not being elected. Maybe you should say, I'm not running because I intend to be elected. I'm running because I want to be able to make us to state the case for Christ the King and to appeal to our people. If I'm elected, well, that's God's will. I'll leave that in his hands. But I'm not going to adjust my message for the sake of gaining your vote. I'm going to tell you um, who I am, what I stand for as a Catholic. And if you, if you like that, vote for him. If you don't, don't. Um, I mean, this is how I think uh, every... Every one of these races from dog catcher up to the presidency of the United States of America should have a traditional Catholic on the ballot and holding that microphone for one minute, ten minutes, an hour, and just uh, telling people what it, like it, it really is, that Christ is king. And the reason why we are witnessing all of these tragedies and travesties today is because he has reject, been rejected, this king. And uh, the minute you see that, the minute you understand that, it's a moment of enlightenment in your own mind when the light goes on that you can begin to make the right choices and make the right decisions. You know, it's, it's, it is absolute folly to think that the moral character of the leader doesn't affect the whole nation, doesn't reflect the whole nation. The moral character of the leader is uh, probably the single greatest factor in determining the rise or fall of the nation. And what determines the moral character of the reader, leader? The moral character of the people who vote for him. So if you have a corrupt people, and, and, or the elections are in the hand of corrupt people, the control of corrupt people, 
they are going to choose the most corrupt person running. Inevitably, it's like the least common denominator. They're going to choose the most corrupt person they can find on the ballot to vote for, to elect, and the entire nation is going to be corrupted by that. The stench of that coming from the State House, from the White House, will just uh, gag the nation. Um, so, um, you know, Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, a French visitor to our country, um, admired America in the 1800s. He said, America is great because America is good. When America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. In light of the Make America Great Again uh, effort, it's important to recognize what de Tocqueville said. Now, I'm not saying de Tocqueville necessarily was a saint or even a Catholic. I don't know. But as far as Catholics are concerned, we'd have to agree with de Tocqueville. America is great only insofar as America is good. But for us, goodness depends upon what Jesus Christ says is good. He is the Lord. He is the King. He is the Savior. He is our Redeemer. He is the one who has the right and the power to make the laws and tell us what is good and what is evil. And so our judgment of America being great depends upon America being good, true. But our judgment about what makes America good, for us, we look to Jesus Christ to tell us what that is. And it's not abortion. And it's not transgenderism, so-called, which is nothing but transvestitism. As Taylor Marshall recently said, very wisely, I think, it's nothing but a bunch of transvestites who still walk around with... Uh, you know, the chromosomes of their, their proper gender, uh, they can't change that in their structure. They can't. Uh, so it's basically Halloween for them all the time, right? Um, but we have to realize that, you know, when it comes to uh, the rule of Christ over a society, it really is a matter of life and death for that society. Because uh, to the extent that Christ rules over society, that is the only hope that society has of providing peace, prosperity, and, uh, well, genuine happiness for its people, you know. And uh, to the extent that Christ does not rule over a society and its laws and the enforcement of those laws, uh, that society is doomed. You know, St. Augustine wrote about this. You know, Catholics should know this. This has been a part of Catholic doctrine for forever, you know, from the beginning. St. Augustine wrote the City of God about the year 400. You know, in the preface to that, I have it here, in the preface to that work, here's what he said. He says he's, he's undertaking to write a work showing the difference between the City of God and the City of Man. Okay? And these really symbolize the idea of the Kingdom of God and the Kingdom of, well, the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Antichrist. You, you know, it's a very long work, and he goes into a great deal of detail. But he starts out with the principles, and the preface, he says, The glorious city of God is my theme in this work, which you, my dearest son, Marcellinus, suggested, and which is due to you by my promise. I have undertaken its defense against those who prefer their own gods to the founder of this city of God a city surpassingly glorious, whether we view it 
as it still lives by faith in this fleeting course of time, and sojourns as a stranger in the midst of the ungodly, or as it shall dwell in the fixed stability of its eternal seat, which is now with patience, which it now with patience awaits for, expecting until righteousness shall return unto judgment. And it obtained by virtue of its excellence final victory and perfect peace. A great work this, and an arduous, but God is my helper, for I am aware what ability is requisite to persuade the proud how great is the virtue of humility, which raises us not by a, a quite human arrogance, but by a divine grace above all earthly dignities that totter on this shifting scene. For the king and founder of this city, of which we speak, has in scripture uttered to his people a dictum of the divine law in these words, God, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. That's from St. James chapter 4, verse 6, St. Peter chapter 6, uh, verse 6, St. Peter's epistle, second, I believe, or first. In any case, this is how he begins his treatment of the city of God. So this idea of there being a, a society, because that's the word, what the word actually means in Latin as he's writing it, a society of God, <coughs> a kingdom of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, is not new. It's, it's actually part of the church's teaching from the very, very beginning. It's not a mere abstraction. It has been realized at times. It's something that is absolutely practical in its application. I mean, you think about a society governed by the commandments and the Beatitudes. Its very constitution is, incorporates the idea. Now, you may say, well, that can't happen. Well, I mean, our own American constitution, our own United States Declaration of Independence, at least acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, the, 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 the Catholicity had been lost, as it were, but there was enough of a Christian training in those who composed these documents that they still had some basic in the natural law. So you see, even now that sounds alien to read our Declaration of Independence, uh, talking about, you know, God, nature is God, giving us uh, rights, inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We look to God. We find the uh, Thanksgiving Day address, uh, we find the address of Saint, uh, of, uh, not Saint, George Washington. We find the address of uh, Abraham Lincoln referring to God. Nowadays, people would be horrified by that, I guess. Nowadays, you've got a resident Biden who tries to even say the Declaration of Independence, or the, the, I'm sorry, the Pl Pledge of Allegiance, I guess it was. And he says, well, you, you know the thing, you know the thing. Okay? This is what you get as a result of the rejection of the kingship of Christ. But you have a society that is governed by the commandments of the Beatitudes, by our Lord Jesus Christ. And what you find is a society in which you find what St. Paul refers to as the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Ghost. And he says in Galatians chapter 5, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is charity, joy, peace, patience, benignity, we might liken it to kindness, goodness, longanimity, mildness, faith, modesty, 
continency, chastity. He says, these are the fruits of the Holy Ghost. There's no law against these, at least not in a good society. But he, he compares that to what he just talked about, the works of the flesh, he says, and contrast that. And a society ruled with these things, and in which you find a society in which you find charity, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, longanimity, a society which bears these fruits. Contrast that with a society which is based on the works of the flesh. He says in Galatians 5 again, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are fornication, uncleanness, immodesty, luxury, idolatry, witchcrafts, enmities, contentions, emulations, wraths, quarrels, dissensions, sects, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Well, you're describing modern society. You're describing exactly what St. Paul says, exactly what, what you get when you reject Christ. And he says these works are manifest, he says. And it's true, these works are indeed manifest in every society which rejects the kingship of Christ. They are the manifestation of an evil government and of a perverted populace. A government which rewards evil and punishes goodness which rewards the works of the flesh and punishes the fruits of the, of the Holy Ghost. You find this in a society which enshrines human rights that cry to heaven for vengeance. And that's exactly what we've got here. The four sins that cry to heaven for vengeance are enshrined in our society, even our very laws as ideals. So such produces a society of those of whom St. Paul says, for many walk, whom I have told you often, and now tell you, weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, and whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. This is what he says. That's from Philippians chapter 3. We saw that recently in Epistle a couple of weeks ago. St. Paul talks about those whose God is their belly, and this, that is the pleasures of the flesh. It's all they know. And this is what you get when you get the LGBTQIA, etc., etc. It's almost like it's, they want to make it like a separate community, uh, all based upon a common vice and perversion. Call it the, the, like a, a nation of Lepitiquia, Lepitiquia, or whatever. You, I mean, if you were to give it a name, Lepitiquia, you could call it. You know, if uh, you wanted to call the LGBTQIA by a name um, that would apply to it, that gives it a, certain, a separate supranational status, whereby um, this uh, entity here uh, is going to rule the world and take it over. And unfortunately, yes, those who fit this church of St. Paul really are the masters of the world right now. This is to herald the coming of the Antichrist, I'm sure of it. And so what does St. Paul say? Again, back in Galatians chapter 5, of which I foretell you, as I have foretold you, that they who do such things shall not obtain the kingdom of God. And you see, that's the whole point. They have rejected the kingdom of Christ. They set up uh, legitibiquia, their own kingdom of LGBTQIA 
And uh, anyone who would dare resist them or speak against them or expose them is subject to their wrath. They will be canceled or worse. This is the power they have right now. They will treat our children as commodities, mostly sexual commodities. Tom, you saw this, right? A, uh, a luxury apparel company called Balenciaga. Balenciaga recently had ads showing little children, notably little girls, holding bears in bondage, sexual bondage outfits, right? You saw that, right? There are those who actually uh, found this and were horrified. They recognized what they were seeing. So it's not enough for these people to abort the children. <clears throat> those children whom they allow to live now, they have to pervert those children. Reminds me of the words of St. Uh, Ralph, like, there we go again, uh, Bishop Sheen. He says, the difference between a bad man and an evil man is that a bad man profits off of the sins of others, whereas an evil man seeks to destroy their innocence. And that's where we are right now. We are actually in the grip of these evil, evil people who want to destroy the innocence of the children. And these ads certainly are a manifestation of that. So it's not enough to just abort them. Now they, have to, they want to pervert them. Uh, is this a surprise? Not really. I mean, there are people who were expressing their shock over uh, seeing a little girl playing with a teddy bear in bondage, uh, costumery, and so on. But, I mean, they've had these drag queen story hours in the libraries going on for years now. You know? We have somebody raising a voice against them. And Antifa shows up to uh, make sure that the show goes on. Who are these people, right? The perverts, sir. Um, the drag queens and so on. There are drag queens themselves who have spoken out against this. Uh, the perversion of the children, saying this is not what we stand for. But you know what? Unfortunately, they have to admit, well, actually, it is. Uh, now this Balenciaga has apologized, has apologized, they issued apologized in kind of a, an off-site way, uh, we sincerely apologize for displaying unsettling documents in our campaign. We take this matter very seriously and are taking legal action against the parties responsible. As though the company is not responsible. Well, who's paying for this? So they fired the, they fired the photographer. Okay. Um, and including unapproved items for our spring 23 campaign photo shoot. We strongly condemn abuse of children in any form. We stand for children, safety, and well-being. Sure they do. Sure they do. But as Tucker Carlson pointed out, this became so notorious and not a single, not a single uh, element of the mainstream media came out and publicized it and condemned it. Not a single one. Rather than what they did was they said that those who came out against it were, uh, were homophobes and they should be shut down. The people who objected to this, this, this is what the, the legitimate crowd um, wants. They want to silence anybody who would dare oppose them in their perversion of the children. But you know what? <clears throat> this is just the tip of the iceberg. 
I mean, eBay and other outfits have these market places where they're selling bondage bears. Here's one. Bondage Bears Gary Ball Gag BDSM Collectible Stuffed Animal Novelty Gift, $30, $29.99. It's available. And they have a whole host of other things, too. Here you have uh, eBay. Here you have the Bondage Bears, again. Bondage Bears Collectible, no less. And they, they have a picture of the bear, actually. A teddy bear. What could be more quintessentially child like, childlike, childish, uh, child-friendly, but give your child a, a teddy bear uh, in bondage customary. What on earth are you telling this child? What are you preparing this child for? Well, we know what they're after. They're after the children. And uh, they have T-shirts. They have mugs. Uh, all of it. They, the T-shirts say, let me, sh uh, you know, uh, Bondage, let me show you the ropes, the t-shirt, right? It is so perverted, and it's out there, and it's going on, and it's directed at the children, and it is, like, criminally insane. Uh, you know, in, in, the, in the minds of anybody who, well, what can I say? Um, certainly, to my mind, it is criminally insane. On the other hand... Uh, you see, our allegiance to the uh, kingship of Christ requires us to stand up, condemn this, expose it, oppose it in every way we can. And we have to let people know, because I'll tell you, the vast majority of people out there, I think, would be horrified at this, if they realized to what extent this was going on. And to realize that the people they're listening to for their news and their guidance, the information that they make their decisions on, are actually all behind this, covering for this. I think most people would be horrified by that. But you see, they don't know why it's happening, and they don't know what the alternative is. We have to be able to explain why it's happening. The rejection of the kingship of Jesus Christ inevitably leads to this. It leads to the, uh, the triumph of the perversity of human nature in its extreme form. And uh, as I say, you know, it's the, the idea is to pave the way and prepare the world for the Antichrist, <clears throat> where this becomes the order of the day, and anyone who would oppose it is not tolerated. There's no toleration for someone who would oppose these things. On the other hand, uh, Tom, you know, we talked about that letter of St. Louis. Again, you know, you, you read the words of a Catholic monarch to his son, as he's looking forward to the day that he will be called by God for judgment and his son must take over the realm there. And you read these words and they really do tell you beautifully what Catholic governance is and what we regard as the ideal which must be made real. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas said that art, true art, is the idealization of the real and the realization of the ideal. And in bringing and establishing and constructing and working for the foundation here on earth of the kingship of Christ, uh, first by professing our faith in that, our personal faith, then by spreading that, the word, right? 
by praying for that then, by explaining it to people, what it means in the practical order, and working to, for the establishment of this, all of those steps, uh, we are actually realizing the ideal. It has been done at times, can be done. What does Our Lady mean when she says, in the end my Immaculate Heart will triumph? And devotionally we read about the, the reign of Mary, right? <clears throat> that will be the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Truly. Um, that, then you, you'll see. Then you will see what we mean by the kingship of Christ established here on earth. Well, we believe that that will happen. Our Lady said it would happen. We believe the time will come. And so the point is, Believing that now, we have to profess that and work toward that. Um, may I take just a few minutes to read even just the beginning words of Louis the Ninth, St. Louis the Ninth? I feel like I should hand this over to you and ask you to read it. Uh, I no, that's okay. Fine. <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> uh, don't encourage me too much here. Anyway, this has a, a, like an introduction. It's called Letter of St. Louis the Ninth. Roi and confessor to his son Philip the Third, king and confessor, confessor in the sense of a professor of the faith of our Lord, to his son Philip the Third, Saint Louis's letter of advice to his eldest son, the later Philip the Third, provides us with some insight into the attitudes of one of the most important French kings of the period. There has been some questions about its authorship. Of course, experts always have to make the name for themselves by questioning everything and breaking new ground. But anyway, I'm not reading that, I'm saying that. Even if not by the hand of Leo IX, it does reflect, reflect a mindset which, despite the, the pieties of the language, puts forth some real concepts of kingship. With regard to justice, administration, the various classes, towns, and the church. Now, I think I got this from a Catholic website, I think. But... The idea that they're apologizing almost for the piety of the language. Nonetheless, you can see some real uh, concepts of kingship here. It's so sad that they don't see the piety and the concepts of kingship as being not only compatible, but yeah. identifiable. <laughs> they have to be together, you know. Um, but, by the way, St. Louis was the only one of the kings of France who was ever canonized. I think he was the last monarch to be canonized. And uh, that's pretty interesting, considering we're talking about the most Christian kings, you know, who had that title. He starts off by saying, To his dear firstborn son, Philip, greeting, and his father's love. Dear son, since I desire with all my heart that you be well instructed in all things, it is in my thought to give you some advice this writing. For I have heard you say several times that you remember my words better than those of anyone else. Therefore, dear son, the first thing I advise is that you fix your whole heart upon God and love him with all your strength. For without this, no one can be saved or be of any worth. You should with all your strength shun everything which you believe to be displeasing to him. 
And you ought especially to be resolved not to commit mortal sin, no matter what may happen, and should permit all your limbs to be hewn off, and suffer every manner of torment rather than fall knowingly into mortal sin. If our Lord send you any adversity, whether illness or other in good patience, and thank him for it, think you should receive it in good patience and be thankful for it. For you ought to believe that he will cause everything to turn out for your good. And likewise, you should think that you have well merited it, and more also, should he will it, because you have loved him but little, and served him but little, and have done many things contrary to his will. If our Lord send you any prosperity, either health, a body, or other thing, you, might, you ought to thank him humbly for it, and you ought to be careful that you are not the worse for it, either through pride or anything else, for it is a very great sin to fight against our Lord with his gifts. Dear son, I advise you that you accustom yourself to frequent confession and that you choose always, as your confessors, men who are upright and sufficiently learned and who can teach you what you should do and what you should avoid. You should so carry yourself that your confessors and other friends may dare confidently to reprove you and show you your faults. Dear son, I advise you that you listen willingly and devoutly to the services of Holy Church, and when you are in church, avoid frivolity and trifling. And do not look here and there, but pray to God with lips and heart alike, while entertaining sweet thoughts about him, and especially at the Mass, when the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ are consecrated, and for a little time before. Dear son, have a tender, pitiful heart for the poor, and for all those whom you believe to be in misery of heart or body, and according to your ability, comfort and aid them with some alms. Maintain the good customs of your realm, and put down the bad ones. Do not oppress your people, and do not burden them, with tolls or tithes, meaning taxes, except under very great necessity. If you have any unrest of heart of such a nature that it may be told, tell it to your confessor or to some upright man who can keep your secret. You will be able to carry more easily the thought of your heart. See to it that those of your household are upright and loyal, and remember the scripture which says, Elige viros timentes deum in quibus sit judistitia et qui oderint avariciam. That is to say, love those who serve God and who render strict justice and hate covetousness or greed. And you will profit and will govern your kingdom well. Now this is just the first, oh, maybe one-fifth, maybe one-fourth, of the letter to his son, but I think it gives you the tenor of what is in the mind of a real Catholic monarch. But especially at this moment, Tom, that we're on the, well, the eve of Thanksgiving, it's important to point out the centrality of being thankful that St. Louis encourages in his son, Philip. The idea of in adversity, be thankful to God. Be thankful to God. 
that he has sent that to reprove you and to better you. And in, a, in prosperity, be thankful to God, but be humble too, that you not be puffed up with pride and use God's gifts against him. In any case, St. Louis says, be thankful. And that's the word that we should take today from the church and uh, even the message from our, our own country in having this uh, Thanksgiving Day. But from a Catholic monarch of the 1200s, he speaks across the centuries to us through his words to his own son. Be grateful for the prosperity, for the blessings we have. Be grateful for the adversity that are meant for our, is meant for our correction. God would not permit the adversity without giving the graces to, to use it for our betterment and to correct us. The correction is going to be our recognition that the salvation of the nation is in the hands of God. And only with the kingship of Christ can we actually find uh, you know, God's salvation there in the hands of our Lord, in the nail-riven hands of our Lord. Um, riven by the nails, but holding the center. Uh, the right to govern all mankind. There we find whatever hope there is, not only for uh, salvation in heaven above, but, well, as, as the angels sang over the birth of our Lord, over the, over the, over the, the fields, right? Um, glory to God in the highest and, and peace on earth to men of goodwill. Like goodwill is allegiance to Christ the King. Allegiance to Christ the King. It'll let you uh, have your say now. What do you make of all this time? I think you said it all, Father. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. There's, there's still some things to be said, but we'll leave that to a later program. That's right. Well, Father, thank you. I appreciate you uh, sharing all of your wisdom with us here. So God bless you and happy Thanksgiving to you. Well, hopefully it was wisdom and there might be a little more somewhere. <laughs> but that comes from God, heaven knows. God bless you all with a blessed Thanksgiving. And above all, be thankful. Mm -hmm. Thank you to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.